0: We wondered where, where we'd end up. We wondered what would happen to us if we didn't speak. when we were 16, we were in our bedroom and we weren't mixing like other teenagers, going out, night like Kevin, and going to discos. So we wondered where we would end up, whether we would end up staying in our bedroom, like right my our 20s writing books, or whether we would go out, make friends, and get married, have kids. It wasn't to be, was it?
1: welcome to stat i'm telling you all medical true crime stories and nick is bizarre karen wickiam yeah she used to work in the r and now she's sharing the knowledge so let's get involved hey funny and scary at the same time medical mysteries all facts she ain't lying <laughs> so tune in to stat if you dare because crazy things can happen anytime anywhere <laughs> yeah
2: Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wiki. I'm coming to you from, where are we, Mary? Beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Yes, indeed. That's where we are right now. Or as Torontonians say, Toronto. Well, some of us say Toronto. hmm And some other Canadians say that armpit of Canada Hey, we're not the armpit. People don't like anybody outside of Toronto. Don't, don't they, they? Don't like us, Torontonians. But anyway, I think we're great people. Most of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we just listened to June Gibbons talking about how they were likely not going to have some kind of normal life as long as they were together. That you can see up until this point that they were they hold each other down. they were keeping each other back from any kind of normalcy, but they just couldn't couldn't break break the ties. They weren't allowed to go back to Eastgate and they had no plans for their future education. Eastgate no longer wanted anything to do with them. They put a lot of time and energy and I don't know if they just weren't prepared for these two, but I also think these twins were smart angry frustrated stuck in their own worlds and i think you know there was definitely a devious streak between them especially leaning towards more towards jennifer but yeah i do think that they were they were running running the place to a certain degree they and the staff were kind of traumatized by them and their behavior and i think obviously very frustrated because (laughs) <laughs> they weren't able to help them in any way. So yeah, they weren't they weren't w- welcome back. But they also didn't help them to find anything further for their education. There and were
3: how old were they at this time now?
2: Fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Where the hell the parents? What the hell are the parents doing? I, I think that they're in their own little world too. Like they were hoping that. They're, these girls were gonna snap out of it the way i see it
3: the father uh, they're 14 they've been doing this since like birth basically they're not
2: snapping out of it well the father was a very sort of misogynistic type okay wife does all the work raises the kids takes care of the house all he has to do is go to work and come home and everything should be as it should the mom is Uh, seemingly to be like a very kind, quiet, more, um, not, you know, not wanting to rock the boat woman. And she had already so much on her hands with her whole home family. And I think she was worried. So she, in a sense, froze and just hoped for the best. But either way, they didn't fulfill their parental responsibility. And you got to look at the times And all this other kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I get it's different now. If your kid is not
3: developing properly, you're, like, at the doctor right away, right? Yeah.
2: And there's still this sort of magical thinking towards twins. You know, they're unique. They're their own. They'll snap out of it at some point. You know, just just, they're still sort of magical thinking about twins. But talking is socializing. No wonder they were so messed up with other people. Again, I I don't know so much of it was being neglectful as being scared and not really knowing what to do. With the mom and the father being like, well, it's not my problem. It's your problem. (sighs) So, they went home. Not enrolled in school. They got accepted for unemployment benefits because... Everyone had given up on them, especially themselves. Like these two twins had no social skills, only two high school credits between them. And they were living in their own little world. And people had no idea, including them, how to be able to function at a job. It seemed preposterous. Like, what are they going to do? Where are they going to work? Is there a job where you don't have to talk to people? Or at the very least, communicate with your bosses, right? Maybe worked in a mortuary. Still, you still have to talk to someone, right? I know. Um So... They gave themselves a self-imposed prison sentence with the jail cell being their bedroom. They had their meals delivered to their room um, by their mom or their sister, Rosie, younger sister, Rosie. And Rosie was the only person that they would talk to. Um, She shared a room with the twins. And I think part of the reason uh, they wanted to have her around is because they used her as a a maid like an errand girl so she was bringing food to them you know doing some chores for them and anything they wanted outside of the house she they'd be demanding and say go get this get that and she would do it um and the only day that they would leave their home was to go out and get their unemployment check the other siblings Greta and David were disgusted by their behavior and wanted nothing to do with them. They couldn't believe that their parents allowed them to be so disrespectful and demanding. And they were running the household and causing so much tension and stress. And here are some examples I'm just going to go through quickly. Um, If they wanted to watch a specific TV show, they like top of the pops. They would leave a message on the table telling the family members um, the time and the date. Of when they wanted to watch the show and to leave the door open to the living room. So what they would do was sit at the bottom of the stairs, look through the living room doorway and watch the show. And if anybody got up to go to the bathroom or do something, they would run upstairs and hide. Um, and they were constantly uh, spying on everybody in the house. So even though they spent their time up in their room, when they weren't doing what they were doing in the room... They were sneaking around and spying on everyone. Now, that would drive me nuts. <laughs> it's just You know, if you, if you get weird. up to go to the bathroom and it's like, pew, they're gone. Like, What is wrong with you? Are they like afraid of, cat, afraid of cats? <laughs> no, they're just...
3: It's uh. oh, weird. So they would leave a note,
2: like a handwritten note. Yeah, I want to watch Top of the Pops on Tuesday at 7 p.m. And they'd sit at the bottom of the stairs and if anybody came by... They'd run away. They'd run away. And then they'd go back down. And they were spying on people all the time. You know, if you leave a note saying "I want to watch this at this time," leave the door open. I'd be like, "Yeah, well, come sit down," and ask me. Ridiculous. Again, their behaviors were, you know, tolerated.
3: Yeah, exactly. I can understand why the older siblings were kind of like, "All right, come on."
2: Yeah they they were they were sort of dumb with them. Pretty early on. Um, after they got out of the cute stage and they were into this devious stage, they were just like, you know, we, we want nothing to do with this. So they were no longer allowed to go to any family events or celebrations after their behavior at Greta's wedding. So here's a quote from the book, The Silent Twins, by Marjorie. Time. What? I was just
3: going to say, is that, oh, you're telling us now what they did at Greta's wedding. Yeah. Oh,
2: okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a quote from the book, um, The Silent Twins, by Marjorie Wallace, that I've, you know, been... Um, researching a lot through this book. Okay. Quote, At Greta's wedding the previous year, the twins' unresponsive behavior had cast a blight on the whole occasion. For four hours, they stood, eyes fixed on the floor, their arms hanging awkwardly in front of them. They refused to acknowledge the bride, the groom, or any of the guests. End of quote. Their behavior was so bad that their parents were barely home. David couldn't stand the twins and he wanted to move out ASAP, and they pretty much had the house to themselves. At the age of sixteen, they lived in a fantasy world of dolls. It was a rich world. Jennifer, June, and Rosie each played a role. The intricacies of this world was astounding The, t- the twins and Rosie would talk through these dolls.
1: my. Dress. Thank you. Steps came down the steps, and Gina pulled off. Hi, Neil! So <laughs> sure nice to see you. Hi, you boy, you look smutty in those clothes. You look lovely in that dress. Don't you? look lovely. So, bye. Gina's mother's call that, What time are we coming back home? About nine or 10 again. Won't be long anyway. Don't come back too late. I won't. Bye. This enjoyable story was a good story, wasn't it? About three girls. No. Uh, Lydia was played by Rosemary, Gina was played by Jennifer, and uh, Nina was played by June. I don't, I don't remember who they were, but it's familiar happy story. And you say goodbye. And Nina first, goodbye. And Gina, goodbye. And Lydia, goodbye. Hello. So the time is 75 past nine, and time for the news which Richard Baker.
2: They made them clothes. They set up the room as a home for the dolls. There was even a church where they would have full services. They'd make little furniture, sewed many outfits. They even made perfect little miniature books and and wrote stories, tiny little stories with tiny little pictures inside these books. Wow. They had a tape deck that they used to play church music when they would do a sermon or they would record themselves as they were playing. June wrote stories. Like, she wrote all the stories, the backstories, everything for what they were going to be playing out. And settings, character roles, you name it. And then she would cut them up into little pieces and hand them out to Jennifer and Rosie. And they were supposed to read their lines and follow these stories. So, like little scripts. Basically. Yes, yes. And these stories got increasingly more bizarre and violent. Not surprising. Here's point. here's one of the stories that, of course, June wrote it. Okay. Quote, oh, June wrote it or Jennifer? No, jo- June did all the writing. Oh, June did all the writing. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was Jennifer. Sorry. No. Okay. Quote. This is the sad and lonely story about a boy named Wesley Gavin Miller. He was born in Philadelphia, USA, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Miller, who later divorced and gave him away for adoption. You must understand the sympathy given to Wesley until he went to live with his new parents, Mr. Danny Miller and his wife, Tressie. The tragedy struck for little Wesley, who came all the way from Philadelphia to live the rest of his short life in fear. Why did the Lord pick on a little innocent boy to be slowly battered and made his life hell? Why, oh why? It was a hot summer day in June 1975 that Tressie and Danny Miller waited outside the American-styled home to greet their child, who had been flown from America with a social worker, Mrs. McKay of Washington. Two minutes later a car drew up. Out came a slim young woman, and pulled out by his hand was a little boy no more than three feet tall. He had masses of thick brown hair, freckles on his nose, and a cheeky, happy face. Hi, Wesley. These are your new parents. How do you do? said Tressy Miller, looking at the boy. mister Miller said nothing, but you could tell from the look in his eyes that he hated Wesley from the very start. End quote end of the book. End of the story. That's a bit dark. So the doll families grew and shrank with life and death. There were marriages, divorces. There were villains and heroes, parties, graduations, funerals, weddings. And one of Rosie's roles was to be the registrar of births, deaths, and marriages. <laughs> okay. So she recorded them in a notebook. And many of these entries were pretty gruesome. So here are some of them. I'm going to read She's through some. recording here. all the... As written out and decided upon by June. Right. These are all the stories and of the births, deaths, and marriages of of this doll world that was really, it was real to them. Okay. Samantha Miller, age six, operation on face, never succeeded. (laughs) Some of them are kind of funny. Operation on face. uh, Never succeeded, so I wonder what they were trying to do. Ann Miller, age six, operation on both eyes, never succeeded, glasses worn. June Gibbons, age 9, died of leg injury. George Gibbons, age 4, died of eczema. <laughs>
3: what the hell? Some bad eczema.
2: <laughs> Bluey Gibbons, age two and a half, died of appendix. George Gibbons, fatally struck down by a back injury. Peter Gibbons, well, that's fatally struck-, struck down by a back injury. Peter Gibbons, age 5, adopted, presumed dead. Like, what the hell? Yeah, and this one, Julie Gibbons, age two and a half, died of a stamped stomach. Polly Morgan Gibbons, age four, died of a slit face. Susie Pope Gibbons died of a cracked skull. Wesley Miller, who we just talked about, it turns out he ended up dying of battering. And Randy... Like
3: like being beaten,
2: basically. Yeah. Okay. And Randy and uh, Rebecca Miller, twins, age 10, died of cremation burial with fire. So they burnt them alive. Okay, so all of them either have their own last name or Miller. Which is interesting that, exactly, and one of them was named June Gibbons. And It was June Gibbons that wrote it. So I I found it interesting that it was like, yeah, their last, same last names. But, you know, kids play, they, they say what they know. Right. But in the same token, they're 16. So anyway, uh... The twins also tortured their dolls, ripping off their arms and legs and heads. And of course, they did. yeah, playing out gruesome scenes, reattaching them in a Frankenstein like manner. <laughs> and they had a deep seated rage for each other, which is the tone throughout the story and, and the world around them. They often fantasized about murder and suicide. They wanted to be free of each other. And uh, June started to self-harm. She would take a penknife and make cuts into her wrist deep enough that they would bleed freely. Um, her mom, Gloria, knew this was happening and she would try to comfort her, try to, you know, help her through it. However, June and Rosie would laugh and torment her. They would make fun of her. So you can see yeah. this. Oh,
3: I thought
2: the mom you're saying, Oh, they torment her. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, June. So she's crying out for help, cutting herself and her sisters are laughing at her and tormenting her and making fun of her. So this just deepened June's hate for Jennifer. And like we talked about before that these twins did nothing halfway. They were, they have obsessive personalities. They would go hard all the way on something until something else caught their eye. So examples, they didn't talk to people. That's pretty big. Mm, Yeah. The extreme mimicking behavior of each other, the fantasy world with the dolls. So the doll world they lived in, in essence, kept them from growing up emotionally and psychologically. However, it couldn't stop them from growing up physically. Okay. But they did try for a little while. For, For a while there, they would, they bound their breasts. They didn't want to look, they didn't want to grow up. So they saw an ad for a correspondence course for a writing school and they decided that this would be their career. They were going to become famous authors. And the, again, the woman that wrote the book, Silent Twins, um, Marjorie Wallace, she had, she spent 20 or more years communicating with, with these guys in fact I think to this day she still has she still communicates with June and she wrote everything that she could get her hands on of theirs and she said there was over a million words written by them so I'm going to play uh, a, a clip here of um, June talking about this okay all night long typing our books out um
0: adamant that we were going to be right this or some sort we're going to speak uh, express ourselves we would express ourselves in our books. And we had to do something to make the family feel proud of us. Write books. It was something to be proud of, wasn't it? We can't speak, can't contribute in a normal way. We do it in a different way. Write books and be bestsellers and let our family feel proud of us. There were twins of written books. they famous. They're so nice. In January
2: 1980... They each got diaries for Christmas and they began journaling every day. And soon after that, they were writing all day and into the earliest hours of the morning. Most of their stories took place in an American uh, setting. They had a deep fascination with all things American. To them, the USA was a utopia. By mid-January 1980, June had written her first novel and it was called Pepsi-Cola Addict. And this was actually um, published And I'll I'll explain in a minute. So this is what the story is about. It's about a 14-year-old by the name of Preston Wadley King who lives with his mother and sister and he loves Pepsi. And there's some, you know, reference in the book that he would drink 300 Pepsis a day. Um, They are very poor, living in Malibu, and Preston falls in love with a girl named Peggy who doesn't share his same feelings. Preston himself is being pursued by a gay guy by the name of Ryan. And Preston gets seduced by his music teacher and they begin to have a sexual relationship. He ends up becoming a drifter, ending up in prison where he is almost raped and killed. He's abandoned by all he loves. He gets released from prison and goes to his mother's empty apartment where there are barbiturates and he takes a whole bunch of them. And just after that, he gets a call from Peggy saying she loves him. And while he was on the phone with her, he gets stabbed in the heart and dies. wow <laughs> yeah hey maybe a really good book i mean they were amazing writers they were very talented but it just kind of shows you well they have like imaginations of course uh, yeah twisted a bit at times. <laughs> so june and jennifer had no idea how to get their work published so what june did is she went with the, while they were trying to figure it out there was a publishing com- company called new horizons publishing and what they would do is that if they accepted your novel you would they would publish your book for you but you would have to pay them to do so because not every publishing company is going to say i want this and here's a you know here's some money for it anyway so she got a thousand copies uh published i'm not sure what happened after that i know that there is one or two floating around right now but it's it's impossible to find because i thought "Mm, the holy grail the pepsi book and i'm like i must have that and it's it's just not to be had apparently there's someone out there that has a photocopied version of it (laughs) but i'm like "Mm, i want it anyway um But Jennifer would never have any of her books or uh, poetry, they wrote a lot of poetry as well, published. And this would be another source of disappointment and jealousy and hatred from Jennifer to June. But this didn't stop Jennifer from trying, though. She wrote with even more fury. Jennifer's stories were more macabre. She wrote about voodoo, black magic, and the paranormal. And the one story that stands out and considered one of her best is called the pugilist. And this story involves like open heart surgeries being performed in people's kitchens, a heart transplant from a dog to a human death of children and other violent deaths. So on and on, they went writing day and night. And, um, it was, I think one part obsessive need to become famous and recognized, uh, for their novels and poetry and one part obsessive need to outdo the other. Mm -hmm. the longer they were cooped up in the room together, the more they hated each other and each wanted to be a separate individual. But they feared that if they set out to be independent, the other would have a better life. They both wanted to be married and have children, especially uh, June. She really wanted to have a a child. But if they separated, well, what if you're happier than me? What if you're more loved than me? What if you get the things that we desire and I don't get them? So they glued themselves together even more. So instead of trying to pursue being happy, they stayed stuck because they couldn't stand it if the other person achieved that or achieved more of that. So they stayed together and they watched each other's every move with the rage. You can imagine this rage and resentment growing. Um, And they were depressed. They had this feeling of hopelessness. And that they were wasting their lives away and continu- continuous thoughts of suicide and murder. It, 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 the, the theme still is here that they're so insightful, but completely delusional at the same time. Yeah, they know. It's so frustrating. Yeah. So at 18, they could no longer pretend their way out of adulthood. They could no longer the physical, emotional and hormonal changes that had come um, with adulthood. And this led to their next obsession, the opposite sex, dating, relationships and the desire to be uh, married and have children. And of course, they wanted that all at once. Mm -hmm. We're going to meet someone and this is all just going to happen. So from zero to married with children. So they started to put effort into their appearance. They were no longer binding their breasts. And they, so this is how they started out with this. They bought a pair of binoculars and started spying on everybody in the new neighborhood searching for male prospects. So they, <laughs> they just can't say, hang out, go for walks or go to a park or something. They're like, they get binoculars and are watching people. Uh, so they they caught the, this this 15 year old by the name of Darren caught their eye and, they he, they would leave him love letters and 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 things in his mailbox under his door but they they couldn't they wouldn't leave their name or address or you know phone number or any way to meet in person to them i guess it was sort of just pursuing this but not being able to take it one step further so obviously this wasn't working so they decided to do something else they got some books on, and this this would carry on throughout the rest of their, their lives. They bought some books on the occult, witchcraft, black magic, self-hypnosis, and mind over matter. And they tried to cast spells and have ceremonies to conjure spirits. They made potions with their own blood. They did secret rituals and made voodoo <laughs> dolls. And yeah, so like, again, it's this this fantasy world they live in where I I, be, I believe they actually believe this could work. So this desire to have these things, but no idea how to achieve them. So they did this. Just before Christmas 1980, they committed their first crime. They stole two teddy bears from a post office. And this was the beginning of a big downhill downhill spiral for them. They also bought some magazines to seek out pen pal. So this makes more sense. You know, they could write to people. They wouldn't have to, you know, speak to them face to face, but their letters were weird. <laughs> <laughs> Cause they have no social skills, but they were on the right track at least. So maybe if we write to people, because they, like I said, they were incredible writers. And by the spring of 1981, all their attempts to make friends and get boyfriends had failed. So, June and Jennifer remembered an American boy that they had met while going to Eastgate and his name was Lance Kennedy. His father was in the military and he was doing a four-year stint in Wales. And the Kennedys were comprised of four brothers and a stepmother. So because he showed them some kindness while they were in Eastgate they thought, "Okay, well he's the perfect guy. Let's find out where he lives." And they did whatever it takes to find out they were making phone calls like out of a phone book, like every (laughs) call, 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 every number they can come up with. They were calling switchboards. They were calling everything to try to find out who these people were. So first of all, they're the silent twins. But when they want to, you know, get something, they, they use their voice. But could you imagine all that obsessive time and effort to find this phone number? Of this. Or did they get Rosie to call? No, no, they did. They did it.
3: Because even when they speak, you can still hear there's an impediment.
2: Yes, but still they, they would speak when they, they, they had to mm-hmm. or they felt they needed to. So after much effort and har- harassment, they were able to get his parents' phone number. And they called the house constantly, like hundreds of times a day. And when they would pick up the phone on the other end, they would hear giggling. You like how creepy. You <laughs> pick up your phone or it'd be dead silence. Or there would be a girl that would come on with an American accent whose name was Lisa Ford. So that was June or Jennifer pretending to be American. And they came up with the name Lisa Ford. So they finally gathered enough courage to speak to one of the brothers on the phone. Only it was a brother by the name of Wayne. Lance had gone back to the US to join the military. So then they started to try to forge some kind of relationship with Wayne. So Lane, Wayne, this this family, these 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 uh sons were really messed up. Like they're very disturbed. Perfect match. Yeah. Lane, like Wayne was a lazy moocher who didn't go to school. He didn't, you know, he worked part-time jobs Um, and he lived off his, his parents and they all had like, they were womanizers. They, even though they were only like young, but they still like had no respect for, for females. Uh, they, he was a liar and a thief. Wayne invited them to a nearby town where they or a town nearby to where they lived. And, he told them that they could, that they lived by this dingy biker hotel. So on their 18th birthday, they decided to take a cab to the hotel in an attempt to find out where they lived. So when they got there, they start rummaging through the garbage for clues. Like how did they figure they were going to figure out in a bar garbage? There's going to be a letter. Lance Kennedy lives at like, again, they're where their, where their brains at, were at. Um, and maybe, again, it's just this, this magical uh, fantasy world where it's like, okay, well, we'll be detectives and we'll find out this way. They were kicked off the property. Mm-hmm. So then they began to walk around town to see if they could find the house to where they live, where they lived. They walked day and night. It ended up pouring rain. They ended up sleeping beside a phone booth. This is their birthday. So early in the morning, they tried calling the house again. This time, Wayne answered, and he said, okay, I'll meet you up up at a coffee shop. He didn't show up. So after 24 hours of not eating, sleeping in the cold rain, they walked home. This did not stop them. But they did stick to their own neighborhood for a little while, and they would walk around the neighborhoods dressing as boys and pretending to be boys. They continued to uh, commit petty theft and wanted to hang out with the, you know, the the bad kids in the neighborhood, the hooligans. But they continued to search for where the Kennedys lived. And eventually they found out. On April 21st, 1981, they took a cab to the tiny town of Welsh Hook and got dropped off at the cottage where the Kennedys lived. But instead of going to the front door and knocking, they snuck around to the back of the house and peeped into the windows. They saw that there was no one home. (laughs) They checked the door and found it unlocked. They entered the house and ransacked it. They went absolutely nuts inside this house, giggling and laughing and running around, making sandwiches. They stole pictures. They went into the bedrooms, but the bedrooms were locked. So they grabbed chairs and were bashing open and breaking chairs to get into the bedrooms to rummage through the, the the family stuff. They were trying on clothes reading letters, just being as destructive and intrusive as you can possibly imagine. Eventually, they tired themselves out and uh, made some coffee and sandwiches and sat on the couch and watched TV. <laughs> what the fuck? When they heard a car pull up into the driveway, they tried to escape, but they were caught escaping. And the father, George Kennedy, had arrived home with his wife. So the kids were in this order, Jerry, Lance, Wayne, and Carl. So I talked about the four boys. So Jerry, Lance, Wayne, and Carl, they weren't home with them. Just, you know, he comes home day of work with his wife and here are these, these crazy girls. And the place is like upside down. Absolutely trashed. Okay. So just to give a bit of background, I told you that the boys were troubled. Their mother had committed suicide by shooting herself in front of them. Oh, geez. Um, George was rarely home and had very little to do with them. You know they were always moving from place to place. They had a stepmother, and his sons, especially Carl. Carl, the youngest, was the most messed up, and he was absolutely spoiled and allowed to do whatever he wanted, but nothing was addressed in terms of of everything else. Oh, so
3: I, I can't imagine the trauma.
2: Yeah. So you'll see that like, he he's an absolute sociopath. Um, and he would have the most contact with the twins in the long run, and. Yeah, you'll see. Anyway, George questioned the twins, asking them why they had broken into their home and if they were the ones that had been calling day and night. (laughs) Of course, the twins didn't answer the questions. And he thought, okay, well, maybe of calling the police, but the police were always being called on his kids. So he thought, no. And he, he called them the cab, called them a cab and said, go home. Don't come back. Don't call. That's it. But remember that once the twins got obsessed with something, they wouldn't let it go. They would push further past any obstacle that got in their way. The next day, (laughs) they broke in the house again and went through all of Wayne's things. They figured out his room and they left without getting caught. Two days later, they returned. Only this time, they broke um, into a church close to their home. Bought some fish and chips, sat back and dined in the church. After that, they headed over to the Kennedy's house. They broke in by smashing a window. And they used the phone to start making prank phone calls. (laughs) And they took a cab day after day after day to Welsh Hook for weeks. Sometimes they went into the house or the church. Sometimes they hung around town and followed Wayne and Jerry around. I've got a, a clip about uh, from June talking about this time. We fell in love with them.
0: All of them. Her family. All the American boys. So we fell enough with them, we're getting bes- besotted over them. So every day we get up in the morning, we go out and see them. All the way to West Hook. We had pounds girl money a week. We' spend all the money on taxi fares. So come in, come shine, we'll be out there dressed up, makeup, hats, wigs or whatever, clothes.
2: I would say, look at what see the boys. By then, they were smoking cigarettes and weed and drinking alcohol. They were also introduced to sniffing glue. Oh my God. They were high and drunk, or both, um, the majority of their waking hours. Now, I'm just going to play another clip here for for you about how how they why they enjoyed being intoxicated. That felt like we speak now? I'm BSL
0: lose our inhibitions and be ourselves and come out and speak properly and laugh and talk like normal teenagers. And we come back about midnight at night time, tumble back drunk into the house upstairs, about our diaries, And say what we've done in the diaries. So we say, let's go out again
2: chingy chingy sound you're hearing in the background was, is like she has like 50 bracelets like she wears 50 about um, bracelets
3: that. i can hear like yeah. some sort of metal noisy thing yeah, in the background that's her bracelets so when she's talking she's moving her arm her hands mm-hmm.
2: um so i mean there there you have it she's saying that you know they were able to be themselves they were able to talk they were able to relax yeah, they were able well, to like, let the anxiety like the purge, go right like that's what people you know sometimes say it like, help them feel normal
3: yeah to, to, to lose their inhibitions and
2: yeah so they spent most of their money on booze, drugs, and cabs, and they did little to no writing at that time. To them, life was exciting. They were having fun for the first time in their lives, and they started to think that Wayne was their boyfriend. Of course, they shared Wayne. Even though there was nothing like that going on, in their mind, he was their boyfriend. And they were going down the wrong path. But things were going to get a whole lot worse. Like I said, Carl Kennedy, who was only 14, but had would have a lot of influence on them, was his youngest brother and the most troubled. In fact, like I said, he was a sociopath. He, his family didn't, like, other than his father, his brothers didn't like him at all because even he was too much for them. Wayne wanted to stop seeing June and Jennifer because he felt that they were too strange and too obsessive. And that's when Carl stepped in, took his place. Now, Carl was ruthless when it came to attending to his own needs he wanted it, he took it and he didn't care about the consequences. He was violent and cruel. He had no empathy or compassion and he just loved to use people up. What he saw in June and Jennifer was an opportunity to have some vindictive fun. Now he liked Jennifer over June because Jennifer seemed to enjoy the same things as him. June was more quiet and sensitive, um, therefore not fun. So Jennifer was more psycho like him. Yeah. Um. And they would beat the shit out of each other. Like slap, punch, throw each other across the room, and they would they enjoyed it. Jennifer and Carl. Jennifer and Carl. Okay. June didn't. She would just sit back and watch. So this is probably some of the weirdest series of events that I (laughs) have come across. And that's that's saying a lot. Like, I don't again, you know, what they say life is stranger than fiction. So before I tell you this, this is just one incident that they, they talked about that on one of their trips down because they become so obsessed with, with sex and they were still virgins. And um, they like I said, they were obsessed with sex and they actually assaulted a cab driver on the way down one time jesus jennifer sitting in the front she was you know touching him inappropriately june in the back was touching him from behind and they were whispering and saying things to him and he's like get the fuck out (laughs) so uh like i said they were going to Wellshook every day spending most of their times at or with the kennedys so they really wanted to lose their virginity they wanted to things to move forward for them and they both believed that they were madly in love with carl this rough and tumble tough american boy
3: okay so it wasn't wayne anymore no it was First carl it
2: was Lance, and it was wayne now it's carl yeah because you know even wayne was like now these they're too much <laughs> so most of the time like i said was getting drunk and high and fighting and watching tv or, or making out things like that so well june sat back intoxicated she would watch Jennifer and Carl do more and more crazy things. Okay, so on this, this one day, Jennifer, June, and Carl would go to the nearby church that I talked about, and they would continue on with their antics. <laughs> so Carl Kennedy said to the girls, or to the twins, do you want to go to paradise? <laughs> They, they said, yeah, we want to go to paradise.
3: Paradise by the dashboard. Yeah.
2: Um, they went to the church, lit candles, drank brandy, smoked weed, and sniffed glue. Mm-hmm. So if you can picture this dark 14th century English church with candles going and, mm-hmm. you know, and all this other stuff happening, Carl went to the pulpit to do a sermon and he asked the twins if they love god they said yes he said well then in order to prove that you love god you need to strip naked they did then they removed all of his clothes this is something out of like i don't know what (laughs) carl and jennifer then laid on the carpet in front of the altar and had sex (laughs) so this is how she lost her virginity wow this is what she wrote in her diary dear diary one of the best days of my sweet life i've lost my beautiful virginity to carl kennedy at last it hurt a little bit but it happened there was lots of blood we did it in the church sorry god your friend jenny (laughs) so picture this old church they're wasted there's candles on they have sex in the pulpit on this carpet and there's blood everywhere (laughs) so this made june angry Mm -hmm. for jennifer to lose her virginity before june was devastating it was just right, another. It was a competition. It was a yeah. Jennifer now had the upper hand. She was the better twin now, so to speak. Oh my god. Um. What's worse is that Jennifer might have gotten pregnant, and having a baby was something that June wanted more than anything. So she thought this. Oh, okay, she loses her virginity, and now she's going to have a baby. She's taking everything away from me. So now her hatred for her had turned malignant. Two days after this. Evening, this very bizarre evening, Jennifer tried to kill June because she could sense June's desire to kill her.
3: Preemptive stress. Yeah.
2: So they were lying in bed listening to music. June June turned off the music; she didn't want to listen to it anymore. Jennifer jumped off the top bunk, ripped the cord from the radio from the wall, wound it around June's neck, and began to strangle her with it. June fought her off and Jennifer dropped the cord. And then they both started to cry and said they were sorry. And then they went on to drink an entire bottle of brandy and then went for a walk. Ugh, brandy.
3: I'd barf. Yeah.
2: They walked. A
3: couple glasses of brandy. I'd yeah. be barfing.
2: So June was watching Jennifer the whole time they were walking, mm-hmm. thinking, okay, you know, I can't trust her. <laughs> She's crazy. They're conniving behind each other's back. Yeah. So, they were walking along a field and they came to a stream, and then they started to walk along this, the stream bed. And they got close to where there was a bridge crossing over it. I'm just going to play this clip and then I'll explain what happened afterwards. We're fighting. I push her in the river. I said to myself, if I
0: kill her now, maybe um, I have a happy life. Never have to, Never have to. Never have to steal my personality. Never fighting. more arguing. Get over
2: I pushed her in her and I pushed her hundred times. I said, All right, "Go die. Go and die." You heard from her words; she was she was trying to kill her sister. So June rushed at Jennifer, knocked her down in the water, bashed her head off of some rocks, and held her head underwater. Jeez. And if it wasn't for a car that drove over the the bridge and sort of had like lights headlights came onto them, June probably would have killed her. So that snapped her out of it, and she let her, you know, lift her head out of of the water. And then apparently they fell into each other's arms, saying, I love you, I love you, and begging God for mercy. (laughs) They're so messed up. It's so sad. Yeah. But it's like. It is. It's tragic. It really is. It's, 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 this is one of the. Most wild stories I've ever heard. Again, this is not what I thought the the silent twins w- was like going to be being, about. So being a twin,
3: I understand, you know, I'm very close to Anna and I'd be devastated if anything happened to her. But I want nothing but happiness for her. Like, there's no jealousy competition at all. Like, if she had more than me
2: or whatever, I'd be so happy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... But... You guys are extra lovely loving types anyway but i mean yeah i think most twins you know maybe they're i I don't know i'm not a twin but uh we were talking to our sister-in-law who's also a twin and she was saying that her and her sister competed a lot um but but healthy healthy competition but not not yeah when i told her this story she's like what (laughs) okay so um i'm like what yeah a week later, June lost her virginity to Carl, which is just like, oh, they had to lose her virginity to this this uh, horrific human being. So they both slept at the same time. And I say horrific human being. I mean, he's 14 and really, he's fucked. Mm-hmm. They're all fucked. Troubles. It's all like disturbing. But in the same token, it's also incredibly sad. Yeah. So the cycle of alcohol and drug use and emotional and physical and sexual abuse from um Carl continued until July. So they thought all this that they were experiencing from Carl was love, or from the the Kennedy brothers in, in general. They had no other idea of what love was. So they thought that this was how it was supposed to be. So in the first week of July, the Kennedy family moved back to the U.S. and the twins were devastated and they even talked about suicide. Still, they believed that they had lived the best time of their lives and would look back on their this summer with fondness. Again, I've, I've got another another clip here.
0: That the summer of my life. That was, that was the best summer we ever had. The best summer and the last summer outside. That summer was to be the last summer we had for twelve years outside in a
2: world, the real world. So this is, I think, a good time to to stop this episode. Okay. Um, because. The next part is the next chapter in I'm their sure. lives. It's in the story. Yeah. And it gets like, I mean, there's, there's, a, it leads to this, obviously, but it's a, um, all the, the dysfunctional, awful things that happened this summer that they thought was the best time of their lives. She's even saying it right there leads to another chapter that is, that gets really bad. Their, their crimes, um, get really out of control and very dangerous and they end up um going to uh Broadmoor hospital because of this so i think this is a, a good break to take right here so i i hope you guys if you could able to keep up i could barely keep up with this my eyes are them. crossed um yeah mary's getting a concussion from bonking her head um so yeah, we're going to leave that this this story right here and uh stay tuned cuz it gets even more wild and crazy. Um I don't know crazy's probably not the best word to to use, but this is this is just a, a head shaker of a story. It's mm-hmm. it, it's it it's it's horrific like it's so sad. Mhm. So devious. So like I want to be their friends. <laughs> well, they're troubled. They're so, trouble. yeah. And I, and I want to like snap them out of it at the same time and be like, cut out, cut your shit. But in the same token, be like, okay, you need a friend, a friend who's going to be, yeah, you know, they needed serious counseling, serious psychiatric counseling. And what is, what is wrong with them? What is wrong with them? What is their diagnosis? I don't know. I was thinking that I was thinking you should talk to Heather. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll we'll break that down as as we go into the next okay. uh, next episode but uh okay. cool. yeah so thank you everybody for listening to today's show thank you everybody i uh hope that you're you're doing well and enjoying the the summer uh so far um i know on the other side of the world it's winter for you but I, <laughs> so i hope you're enjoying um whatever season you're in We really appreciate you guys listening to the show and being part of our Facebook group. If you haven't joined, please stop by and see if it's your cup of tea. Yeah. And, uh, you're, you're all welcome. And also if you have a second to leave an iTunes review, I'd really appreciate it. Please. And maybe you can go check out our Patreon page and see some of the things that we have to offer there. But, uh. Again, we appreciate all of you guys and, uh, we hope that you're, you're doing well. Remember to take care of yourselves and take care of each other and most importantly to love yourself. Peace one love true crime and it gets none realer sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you gotta watch out yeah you gotta
1: watch it back because you don't want to be another episode of stat. thank you for tuning in learn a thing or two these medical mysteries can be unbelievable yeah subscribe make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show stack